podcast. This is Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Delbout, and this is the podcast that I've been hosting since 2013. If you have been listening for a while, thank you. I'm so happy. This is probably the greatest thing that I've ever done consistently in my life. I'm so happy that 223 times I've put out an episode every single Wednesday And I hope I keep doing this till I'm 90. I get to meet such cool people through the guests, through the listeners. It's created a community and I highly recommend it. Highly recommend podcasting. If you have an idea for a podcast, let me know. I want to help you and I would love to get as many people into this medium who want to be in this medium as possible. If you don't want to start a podcast, that's cool. You're listening to podcasts, which is great. My boyfriend said this thing once, which... Is, is maybe mean, but I can say it to you because you're listening to this. He says he doesn't trust people who don't listen to podcasts. So, you know, I think listening to podcasts is really cool. I enjoy it. I think the phenomenon is welcomed and I hope it sticks around forever. If you have an idea, if you want to start a podcast, don't let the technical parts of that hold you back. I want to help you. I created something called It was called Launchpod, but I recently changed the name. It's a very long story. I'll tell you guys all someday. But anyway, it is now called Let a Podcast Out, which makes sense because the show is called Let It Out. Anyway, if you want to do that, the last day to sign up for that is it's starting on June 4th. So you have until then. So sign up. And if you want to, you can get $100 off using the code let it out the name of this podcast at checkout because you're a listener and you get a hundred dollars off if you want to do it this is the last chance to do it so this week that's it you got to sign up if you want to do it it's starting on june 4th i can't wait we have one more episode next week and then this podcast is going to go on a little break a little summer hiatus of sorts i hope you guys had a great memorial day weekend and i'll be back in just three weeks so Take a moment, catch up on old episodes, listen to some other podcasts. If you need recommendations, let me know. I'll give you one right now. It's called Speaking Broadly. It's a great podcast, which you'll hear about in today's episode because the host of it is today's guest. Today, we have none other than the very prolific former editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, judge on Top Chef, cookbook author, Dana Cowan is on the podcast, and she wasn't always a foodie. She went to Brown University with previous guest of the podcast, friend of the podcast, and her best friend, Cheryl Miller Hauser. And she started her career at Vogue, then she went to Home and Garden. She was the managing editor at Mademoiselle. You'll hear all about her trajectory working in magazines in New York City. And then later, she brought her lifestyle-oriented approach to 
Food and Wine magazine and really changed the game in food. She was there for 21 years. And now, like I said, she hosts the podcast Speaking Broadly, which I love. Camilla, previous podcast guest, has been Camilla Ruth Marcus, has been a guest on her podcast. Love that episode. We'll link to it in the show notes. And now she's the chief creative officer at Dig In. If you're in New York City, you probably know Dig In. You probably love Dig In. You probably had it for dinner last night. Let's be real. Anyway, Dana is amazing. And I love this episode. I went over to her home and we had tea and we're just so cozy. It was such a lovely afternoon. We talked about writing, friendship, motherhood, relationships, mentorship, managing people, being a boss. We talked about, you know, leadership, transitions when she left her role after 21 years and what that was like for her. We talk about focus and doing one thing at a time, especially in terms of cooking. And of course, we talk about food. I love this episode. It's a long one. It's a good one. We talk about her relationship to food. It's it's a delight. All right, that's pretty much it for announcements. Again, if you like this show, if you want to start your own podcast, this is the last week to sign up. You're not going to have to hear me talking about uh, Launch Pod, call, which it was called previously, but now it's called Let Out a Podcast. You won't really hear me talk about it because it's starting on June 4th. So if you want to do it, if you know someone who wants to start a podcast, send them my way. I want to help them. I will answer any questions regardless of if they do the program or not. Just let me know. Also, I am emceeing the Good Fest on August 11th. I'll remind you of that next week as well, but it's in Philly this year. I would love to see you guys there. I'm going to be planning a meetup for listeners in Philly. And if you're not in Philly and want to just come to the meetup, that's cool too. Details for that will be on my website, but also make sure you're on my email list because big new things coming, new website, new lots of things. So just make sure you're on the email, let it out letter list. We'll link to that in the show notes. And if you want $15 off a ticket for GoodFest, I have a code for you. It's Katie Dalebout 15, Katie Dalebout 15. And I'm actually going to be giving away one ticket to a listener. So make sure you follow me on Instagram. That's where that will be. More on that next week. Okay, let's get into this episode. Stick around to the end. I have a few more announcements. And if you, again, if you want to support the show, share this with someone you think would like it. I'll talk to you later. This week's episode is supported by something called Fit Fab Fun. It's a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99, but has a value for over $200. I don't even know how they do that, but that's amazing. And if you use the coupon code Let It Out, that's Let It Out, you can get $10 off your first box, which you'll find at www.fitfabfun.com. I think it's a really interesting concept. It's really cool. This Fit Fab Fun box feels like Christmas four times a year when it comes in the mail. And the products include everything from makeup to candles, accessories, self-care products like a massage roller, travel products, beauty finds. 
it's really great and you can customize the products add on what you want each season it's different and it's a surprise and the thing that i really love is the membership also includes access to fit fab fun tv which has a variety of workouts and meditations that you can do anywhere and i love that because i love to do workout videos at home i think it's so much fun and i really like fit fab fun and i think you guys will too just check it out. Again, you can get $10 off your first box by using the code let it out at checkout. That's let it out. And the items include everything from Tarte Makeup, which is a natural makeup line I like, Juice Beauty, which you know I also really love. There's so many great things in there. It's really fun and I think you guys will really like it. Thanks Fun. fascinating and I have like I said so many things I want to cover but I thought we could start at the beginning so you grew up here in New York City what were you like as a kid do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up (laughs) oh yes that's an easy one when I was a kid growing up in New York City I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a writer from uh, as pretty much as early as I could write I would write very bad poetry and I would um go to the park and sit with my notebook and um, and write and then I would keep a diary but it was kind of a fake diary because it was um, it was not necessarily things that I wish happened in the day but let's just say there was more fiction than fact yeah. diary and I hid it um, in my bathroom like inside a, a pillow <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so I wanted—I've always wanted to write, and that's what I wanted to do when I was little. So then, what what else was growing up like? Did you have brothers and sisters? What were you like in like your high school years? I have two brothers. One who's just a couple of years older than I am, Andrew, and we were. I would say we were partners in crime, but I think the crimes were usually committed against me. Like he was, you know, he was a bit of a joker, and um, but also a, a good big brother. Like. He, being really cute and two years older, he was a magnet for, for friends of mine. Uh, and then I, we both have an older brother who was ridiculously smart, like the smartest person you'll ever meet. And he was very sciencey and computery and um, medical and was always the genius, uh, the genius of the family. And our parents uh, were fantastic I think uh, my father was really interested in the arts and he loved photography and he okay. loved antiques so I spent a good chunk of my teen years on the weekends going around with my dad um, going to thrift shops and flea markets and trying to get really good deals trying to find cool. the diamond in the rough um, my daughter is 17 and she's about to graduate from high school and tomorrow we're going to go look for a graduation dress. Cool. My father and I went uh, to look for a graduation dress together. It's the same school that my daughter's going to. We went to a thrift shop and found something from like the late, uh, you know, the late 1800s. That was my my graduation dress. And Sylvie, I think, will wear something quite different. And my mother... um, Did your father work in the arts or was that just a No, he was... um, he was more of a business guy, which made it even more sort of special that yeah. he had these very Hobby. intense and very compelling hobbies. Yeah. And then what were you going to say about your mother? And um, my mother, 
has always been in Bon Vivant. Like, she loves a good party. She's cool. incredibly funny, um, engaging, entertaining. And now she's 88. Wow. When we were growing up, she spent a lot of time with her friends and doing sort of good works in the world. Uh, and as she's gotten older, she's gotten really committed to things like uh, women's rights. Not that she wasn't committed cool. back then, but she's just taken such an active yeah. role. And I love her as a role model for like what you can do and be when you are Yeah, goals. Yeah. Amazing. She sounds like a fascinating woman. She's amazing. Is she here in New York as she well? She is in New York. How often do you see her? I get to see her every couple of weeks, um, give or take. She has a very busy schedule. Her schedule is busier than mine. Wow. So I'll say, you know, can you make it on Sunday? And she's like, well... I'm doing these four other things, but if I could come to you between the two of them, absolutely, I'll stop by. So. That's so cool. You know what? I, I'm kind of fascinated right now. I feel like this is something I've been talking about with my friends recently and just people in my life because I maybe it's my age of moving from that relationship with your parents that's not necessarily fully a friendship when you're younger. That's more of like... I think I talked about this with Cheryl when she did the podcast, and I'd be curious what you think of as a as a child to your mother, and then as a parent to your children. How how do you how did your relationship with your mother change as you got older? Did you move to being you know having that adult child relationship with her? Um, I think that the relationship actually stayed quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, My mother was a great travel buddy when I was in college, and I still remember sharing a hotel room in Florida and laughing so hard I was crying because she was just, she was so funny. And, um, you know, just bursting into tears of hysteria. And, you know, that continues to this day. And some of the other crazy things that continue, that's almost embarrassing age-wise, is I loathe shopping for clothes I mean capital letters I loathe (laughs) Um, and so I've always gone shopping like three times a year with my mother and we get you know two items in the spring and two items that's amazing it has not changed that's amazing this has been steady state for more than 25 years so I think our relationship is pretty yeah um, pretty much on the same footing as it was you know, obviously not when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but from college right. forward. That's really funny about the clothes because oh. my mom just visited New York last week and I was feeling kind of weird about it because we just spent most of She stayed in a hotel in Soho and I always go and have sleepovers with her and we shopped uh, like the whole time uh-huh. and it and I was having kind of this interesting like thing of don't you want to do something else and don't you want to see New York or do whatever whatever and my mom lives in the Midwest and and she this was how it's kind of how we bond and Uh she wanted to do that and she's really the only person I like shopping with Mm because I also I hate dressing rooms I don't like even going with friends because I kind of don't want anyone's opinion but I also need other people's opinion and validation of like I'm buying the right thing and my mom is so good for that and so it was I think I'm just coming to terms with like oh this is a way that we bond and it is fun for us no matter what my age is and I like I think you have some years it's anything like me and my mother you have some years left in it I'd say yeah Um, because it's really like we just have a, a great time it's also um I think some of the humor 
is because nothing ever fits me. Uh, and so if we just laugh at how it looks so good on the hanger and it just doesn't look so good on me. Um, my daughter is the exact opposite. We've actually done some three-generation shopping. That's and uh, everything looks great on her, mm-hmm. like everything. We're just proportionally different. It's so funny. Yeah, we I had a moment like that with my mom, like bra shopping last weekend, uh-huh. and we just were like... It, probably like your hotel room in Florida, just laughing so hard at like what it. This is weird that no one makes a, a bra for me. It was it was hilarious. So you mentioned your mom was a party host, and I want to know what your relationship to food was like as a kid. What were was your parents' relationship to food like as a kid? And then my relationship, your, like, right? My relationship to food was with when I was a kid was. Um, I ate it because you need to eat. <laughs> right. No one in my family cared about food at all. I mean, I have none of those romantic memories about food, except perhaps about lobster, because my mother loves lobster, my grandmother loves lobster, I love lobster. All three of us chomp on the legs, you know, to get every last bit. Uh, you know, all three of us just made make um, a huge mess. And whether it was at a fancy restaurant or, you know, by the beach, I have amazing memories around lobster. But aside from that, there was no good cooking. My father got interested in healthy food and uh, his diet. So he would have a vanilla down and yogurt every morning for breakfast while my mother had um, coffee, black coffee, instant coffee in fact, and uh, a Hershey bar. Oh, my God. That was her nutrition. So they were really on opposite sides of the... Yeah, of the, um, that's interesting because I feel bar. like females now tend to be the more into diet culture. I, my mother has never died and never needed to. Um, would not. I mean, I think that it's great. it would never cross her mind. And my father really was the dieter, not in the restricting calories, but always like wanting to eat to be healthy. And he was That's so great. ahead of the curve because yeah. it was really the early 70s. So wow. the natural That's food really movement cool. landed squarely with him. And again, even though he was kind of a finance guy, yeah, you know, he had these arts and then, and this, then wellness and hobby. all the wellness. Wow. He sounds stuff. like a really interesting guy too. Yeah. So then what about in high school and college did your relationship to food change when you got to brown and were making food choices on your own well not so much I think that I began going to restaurants which I didn't do a whole lot growing up I mean we went for birthdays Mm -hmm. but we didn't go as entertainment at brown um, I would go for entertainment and there are a couple places that I would often go back to I did make some dorm food. Uh, my friend Juliet and I, we would make uh, beef fondue in the you know four burner stove in the dorm. She has uh, Swiss parents, or a Swiss uh, a Swiss parent, mm-hmm. and so you know, she ta- taught me how to do it. So that was one of, the, and I knew how to make rice because that was one thing I learned growing up, and that was it. We did that. And I would just marvel. I, I had boyfriends and friends who would cook entire meals. I'm like, how did you even learn to do that? Like, where does that come from? And I just had no exposure to that because no one in my yeah. family cooked. So college was not the big food reveal. Was 
So let's talk about college a bit. I know that you, I think you met Cheryl, your dear friend at Brown. I Were did you guys, meet Cheryl. How did you guys meet? Do you remember meeting her? Cheryl's current husband, mm-hmm. then boyfriend, Victor. We heard all about him and how yeah. they met in the all in her episode. Yeah. We'll put his link in the show notes. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm Cheryl's husband, Victor, was friends with my roommate, Laura and I lived with the same roommate for three of the four years and got to know Cheryl that way but we really became friends when we moved to New York City we bumped into each other on the street and uh, began you know just having dinner Cheryl adopted me because by that time she was settled and you know had a real apartment and she had a real kitchen and she would cook, which she really doesn't do anymore, so that's sort of funny. <laughs> Some of the things that I cook today are still things that Cheryl made. Cheryl wow. makes a great salad. She makes a big, big salad. She's such a, um, you know, she's a grass-eating animal. <laughs> she just, like, eats so much lettuce. I think she mentioned that salad on my podcast. Because she doesn't really cook much else. But yes, <laughs> so the salad and um, chopped apples and nuts. And that became my go-to go-to salad. So, yeah. I would love to talk about female friendship a little bit. Like, we'll take an intermission from your story. You two seem close, and you have such a great relationship. How has friendship with Cheryl and beyond evolved, and what is maybe your greatest lesson on friendship as an adult and as a woman? My friendship with Cheryl is one of the most inspiring things in my life, mm. I have to say, because she is, as a as a person, she's so generous. She, in having so much of her generosity in my life, I really want to emulate that. Like, she'll sometimes say, you really can't, usually if I'm saying something snarky to my husband. She's like, you can't say that. Uh-huh. Like that's, you know, just, you have to be nice. Um, and she just has no not nice instincts. Mm, and I yeah. have some. And she brings, you know, if I can live up to the Cheryl standard, I'm being the best person that I can possibly be. And we exchange ideas without any um, sort of sensitivities to will that hurt someone's feelings because the foundation is so strong. So mm. Cheryl edited every single word of a cookbook that I wrote, the the head notes. And she would write back, you know, obviously, you know, I w- would email her a draft or something and she would email back and say, this is great, but, and then she would shred it. And I was grateful for being shredded. She put so much time and energy. Yeah. Who do you know? I mean, do you do you have a friend who would put that much time just because they love you? Like it was amazing. Yeah. To have yeah. that um, that depth of help, and it's very equitable. You know, some months I could have an obsession that's something that's really troubling me, mm-hmm. and we'll spend every single time we get together talking about this thing that I absolutely cannot figure out for myself. And then the next three months, or four weeks, or two weeks, or whatever, you know. Um, there's something that Cheryl's working on. And not, not to say that we can't work things out at the same time. Yeah. But there's just this fluidity yeah. um, to the friendship because we know it's forever. Mm-hmm. So if you take up, you know, 
too much time like in one sitting yeah like over time it all evens out and no one is leaving that conversation saying oh my god that was such a bore or I didn't get to talk about me or there's sort of a selflessness to it all yeah I know exactly what you mean I have a I'm lucky as well to have a friend like that Uh, several but I I think it is and I want to know what you think about this too I think sometimes to have that level of I guess best friend I would call it of it would be exhausting almost to share at that level or like have that closeness with several people mm-hmm. because then you ha- kind of have to go that deep with a bunch of people and it's just I don't have time to to do that. But I know exactly what you mean about one person. You can't both be down. Sometimes one person's up and one person's down and it just kind of ebbs and flows and it's the trust of like knowing you're okay and knowing you can be vulnerable and then and the, and I think the more that someone's, the more that I'm vulnerable with my friends, the more I give them the space to be vulnerable back to me. And I think that's a, that's something that I'm learning. And, and I think that happens in romantic relationships too, especially at the beginning. But it's, I'm so grateful for my female friendships to not have to put all of that in with my boyfriend or, you know, to have other places where my anxieties can go. I, I agree. It's nice to have someone who, uh, you know, can share slash take the burden um, and it allows you to have to moderate your expectations mm-hmm. like in other other parts of your your life um, I think that the other thing that's really essential is that uh, you trust the person's point of view like when the example I gave is with my book I knew that whatever she was saying really was right yeah and I don't know how many people in this entire universe, truly every single thing that they say, I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, or where just having their voice in the back of my head is like, um, I know that Cheryl would say this, and partly because it's what I would say myself, like we're really, um, we're not the same people at all, but we approach life in so much the mm-hmm. same way that um, it's very sort of, reassuring yeah. but also allows you to trust their opinion. Yeah. And you know each other well enough. I feel like that's she was so helpful and useful in that role with your book probably because she knows you and what you wanted to convey. No, she was really great with that book because she's a really great storyteller and I am not <laughs> in writing. And she just she just looked at it, read it and was like no, yeah. you really need to, like, the story's not coming through. It's true that she knows me very well, yeah. but in fact, that was not the yeah. that was not the thing that was unlocked in the yeah. book process. I think it's so magical. My favorite thing about New York is running into people on the street. Uh-huh. It, whenever it happens, I'm just like, I can't believe it. I still, like, get butterflies because I think it's so amazing. So that's so cool that you guys ran into each other on the street. Did you always know you wanted to come back to New York after after college? Yes, it never occurred to me that I would go anywhere but New York. Yeah. So you, after Brown, got a job right out of college at Vogue, and you were there for about four years, and then you went to Mademoiselle for about four years before going to Food & Wine, where That's you... not quite right. Is, what did I miss? <laughs> so I did go... My first job was at Vogue okay. um, right after school, absolutely, and I was there for about four years. Check. But um, then I 
I quit Vogue because I was really not a great writer and not a great editor, and that seemed to be the path I'd have to take to succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I left for a year, and when I came back, I went to House and Garden. Okay. And I loved House and Garden because I love houses. I I don't have such an opinion about gardens, but I love houses. (laughs) And so I did that for four years. So the four years part was right. And then I went to Mademoiselle for a year after House and Garden folded. So you're working in magazines... What was your, what were those first few years, you know, starting at Vogue and then, you know, the transitions to the other publications, what were your first few years in your 20s like in New York? What were you doing? Were you getting into food then? What was kind of the scene You're like? trying to find the, the food theme. <laughs> yeah. The food theme is, um, is thin. It, it gets, you know, stronger later, obviously. Uh, when I was a Vogue. I worked for a man named Leo Lerman, and it was in the features department. And the features department covered everything from um, music to dance to theater to books to uh, movies, um, anything in the arts. So I was thrown immediately into the New York City art scene, which I loved. And the team of other people who were sort of my age, editorial assistants at Vogue, were fantastic. And we had such a great time. I was the baby assistant, so my job was more like laying out lunch and doing expense reports. But I still had visibility into all these incredible um, arts and things that were going on. And Leo Lerman was at the center of the theater scene, so he knew a lot of famous actors and producers and just being near and around him was very entertaining and he became sort of a godfather figure in a way I really wanted to to write and eventually that became a struggle because I wasn't great at it is that what you studied at Brown not technically technically I was a poli-sci major but I spent my whole time at Brown writing because mm-hmm. that is all I wanted to do. Yeah, and since you're a kid, since I was a kid, and uh, and Brown of course allows you to uh, choose your way. So I did a ton of writing and then a little poli sci and then a little other stuff. Uh, but I wasn't making a whole lot of progress on the writing, and it became incredibly discouraging. So part of my early twenties was trying to figure out. What else could I do? Because yeah. this thing did not seem to be working out so yeah. well. It wasn't hitting all your notes creatively. Well, no, I just wasn't good at it. It wasn't <laughs> like the. It wasn't about the creativity so much as that sort of cracked dream that I had always wanted to do yeah. this one thing, and then I didn't turn out to be. That didn't turn out to actually be the path. Um, and so that was really it was really hard. Um, so I quit. I quit Vogue and yet was drawn back into magazines to to tell stories not as the writer but to produce them and that was the beginning of like all the things that bring me joy when yeah. I was at House and Garden I did a couple of stories that actually never saw the light of day one was uh, on House Robots mm-hmm. which was in 1988 or so. Wow. Um, so it was a long time ago. It was very much before the like the Roomba Revolution. But yeah. it never did see the light of day. But I loved putting it together. I loved doing the research. I researched um, 
all types of collectibles and loved writing about collectibles. It was so much fun. And, you know, I shifted the focus of what I was doing on my weekends to going to flea markets just as I had with my father. And this time looking for things that I could you know, feature uh, in house and garden. And I, it was just, it was a great way to spend my time. And then house and garden folded and I had been promoted from the second lowest job to the second highest job. And so I was managing editor and I was like, I am so ready to be editor in chief. That took a little bit while, it took a little while longer. So I went to Mademoiselle, which is a great lesson in um, not going someplace where you're not interested in the topic because it was at States and Boys, and I really didn't care. There, it was writing about teenagers, and I think I was never the teenager of that the magazine focused on. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a hugely insecure. I mean, I had normal level of insecurity, but like I wasn't hugely insecure. I, it, I wasn't all about boys. Yeah. I um, you know, I didn't care about beauty at all. Fashion was, you know, not so much. My interest, and so as a man, as a, one of the top three jobs there, because I had a couple of different ones, I wasn't really great at sh- shaping that conversation because I just it wasn't really at the heart of what yeah. mattered to me, and um, and so I got really lucky and got this job at Food and Wine. So you go to Food and Wine, and you're that's the first time you're an editor in chief. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the my first opportunity to be editor in chief. Uh, when I went there, I went as, uh, what was the title? I guess executive editor. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that I would go and I would shape the content and the editor-in-chief would stay and she would sort of move on to the more helping sell the magazine. She would go on the ad sales side. And it, it turned out that when I, once I got there, she didn't really like that arrangement very much. So that didn't la- that awkward arrangement didn't last for very long, and I was made editor in chief. So, what was that like for you? That transition in your life, going to this new magazine. What was happening in your life outside of work at that time? Had you gotten married? Had you met your husband? Had you started your family yet? What are you doing outside of work? What is what is New York like? What is the food scene like? Paint the picture. So when I. Went to Food and Wine. It was uh, 1994, and so I was 34. And my father had died two years mm-hmm. earlier, and I was very, very close to my father. So yeah. that um, was still emotionally really challenging. He would have been so proud and so happy to know that I had a- achieved. That job, he was so proud of me, even with the job that I had. Did he pass away unexpectedly? Well, unexpected in that he was 69, but not unexpected in that he he had cancer for three years. Mm. So maybe even shorter, maybe two and a half years. That's Um, hard. And so when I think about it, it was such a big change in my life because he was such a such a focus and this was such a really wonderful opportunity i hadn't met my husband so i um i was single and that was really great because i spent a ton of time working like i yeah. just i worked 
night and uh, night and day. And because I hadn't met my husband, I spent some of my time outside of work, you know, trying to meet someone, which involved throwing parties and having people like bring friends just so I could expand my circle. Yeah. And that's sort of as close as I ever got to cooking because it had never been such a focus of my, uh, my life. And at the magazine, I was hired over people who'd been there forever. Mm. I was hired over people who knew so much more about food. Um, they didn't know more about magazines, I would have to say, but that was also a challenge, right? Everyone yeah. is like, you know nothing about food. You've never been an editor-in-chief. Like, why are we stuck with you? And you're very young. And I was very young, exactly. And and then there were some people who are loyal to the editor-in-chief who had um, been removed. And I didn't find that in you know an overwhelmingly miserable situation, but I also... It's a lot. I was delightfully ignorant of how over my head I was because I just was like, I can so do this thing. I did it a piece of it at Mademoiselle. I really did House and Garden where I believed in the content. And the fact that I don't know anything about food really doesn't bother me, even though it bothered other people. Um, where do you think that confidence came from? I had a really great training ground at House and Garden. I worked for an extraordinary editor-in-chief named Nancy Novograd, who's a good friend to this day, and she's the one who gave me the jump from being the second lowest to the second highest job. And she had the confidence that I could do this ginormous job, mm. as far as I could tell, for no reason. But then I did the job, and which involved um, shaping stories, working really closely with people, to shape their stories, what they were working on, not edit them because heaven knows that was not my strength, but um, but helping Nancy's vision of the magazine yeah. come true. And at some point, it felt like Nancy was the was the that job was the training wheel bike, and I was like, at some point, you know, those wheels begin to feel like they're dragging on you. Yeah. And you just want to remove the wheels and fly. Yeah. And so when I got to Food & Wine, I was ready to just go because I had, you know, I was at House & Garden for four years. There was a year maybe of ramp up and understanding how that job really works. But three years in or four years in, I was like, I'm good to go. Yeah. Just let me at it. Yeah. And... I had such a strong idea of what we could do um, that really benefited me and not yeah. not second-guessing myself too much. Yeah. I followed that vision and, you know, ran a bit into, um, into some rocks. There was a, a, um, a consultant to the to the company, and she came up to me one day and she said, you know, we're really having a problem with the magazine that you're designing. Um, it's just not, she didn't say it's not beautiful enough, but my takeaway was basically, you have six months to fix it, and if you don't fix it in six months, um, then, you know, you're out of a job. Yikes. And 
Right. So all that confidence was great, but maybe a little misguided had I had a little less confidence. You know, I just, I didn't have that underlying fear. What were those six months like? And what did you do to... The six months really weren't very fun. You know, having having someone second guess you and they're not necessarily better or smarter at the job. Like there was another guy that they sent in as a consultant to help us write headlines um, and cover lines. And his ideas were terrible. You know, like mine weren't so good, but they sent, you know, the expert and he had been an expert and he had done great stuff, but he wasn't really helping. I hired a creative director from Australia and that was really the turning point. So I just needed better... I needed a better team. Yeah. And once I got the a better team, then things really got better. Yeah. At that time, this is the early 90s or the mid-90s, and then you were there for 21 years. What was, going back to your life, what was your relationship to food and what was the food scene like when you started and how did it, you watched it evolve so much throughout your time there. What was it like early on, and when did you see that start to change? I still remember going back in the day, so uh, 1994, 95, the Food Network launched, and the Food Network was about three or four blocks from our office, and the Food Network, at simultaneously with Food & Wine, was growing into the chef space. America hadn't really experienced a chef revolution yet. The food had been French, that was, you know, the best food in the country was French. So it was the beginning of an American incursion. Mm-hmm. And FoodWine is very much about helping um, promote these extraordinary chefs in America instead of only celebrating the French guys. And cooking had been mostly left to, like, you know, women cooks and food and wine was very much about equally men and women and appreciating wine like a beverage is a um a great part of a part of the meal and the food network showed how food could be newsy and in fact when i went in the wrong direction at food and wine it was because i was was trying to make um food into news and it was ugly and it, so it wasn't really aspirational and looking back at it now there's food news every day. Like people are obsessed with food yeah. news. Back then, oh my gosh, was that a bad idea? Um, people really weren't weren't ready for it, and it just wasn't pretty or aspirational. So now I don't know that it is pretty or aspirational, but it's compelling because people actually care what the chefs have right. to say. So the the change that was happening in America was the change from not really caring about who cooked your food. Um, to caring about who cooked your food, uh, not being so interested in international cuisine except for maybe French and Italian, and then this explosion in, you know, Japanese, and then the explosion of Asian, like all these cultures and cuisines that came in after it. Um, The radical change in availability of ingredients, which also really informed my time at Food & Wine because... The things available in the supermarket, I mean, we were barely out of the 50s with canned food, like where canned was king. And this was just the transition to the beginning of farmer's markets and, um, you know, baby vegetables. And uh, we've come such a long way, but just thinking about what was available to people, yeah. quite, quite different. 
Wow, it's it's so interesting how that was like when I was a kid to now and how much it's changed in my own lifetime. And, you know, you're one of the most prolific and iconic people in food. And during your leadership there, you saw the early 2000s or mid-2000s, I guess, when food culture really became this shift to an experience and a lifestyle. And you you know, with people planning their vacations around it and planning their day around it. Can you talk about that? And you were directly a part of that and kind of what some of the catalysts for that were and, you know, kind of what your role in all of that was? I love the fact that people... Tran- tran- sorry. I love the fact that people plan vacations around food. It's something I do. I'm obsessed with doing that. Um, my family just has to put up with it. Like, once the hotel is picked, everything else is about, like, where are we going to eat? I love that. Um, You know, four or five meals a day, or places to pop into. Yeah. And then hopefully related to some cultural moments that it's not all food all the time. But one of the things we did at Food & Wine was we took the chefs as the centerpiece, right, because they Mm -hmm. were the ones who were really changing the world of food. And then we said, like, where are they going? Like, what is interesting to them? And then we just began to follow where they went. And then America began to follow where the chefs went because obviously they were going to go to the coolest places and have the best food. And everybody wanted to be like these chefs. And, um, and so we began doing these beautiful travel stories. I mean, I thought they were beautiful. You know, where we would follow someone to, uh, to Singapore or we'd follow someone to a wild place in Italy and, people would take these trips and go to the restaurants that were recommended. And um, I think one of the great things about food is it opens you up to the entire world. Yeah. And seeing the world through food is a very joyful way to see someplace, you know, as opposed to seeing ruins where you're seeing civilizations past. When you're um, seeing the world through food, you're seeing civilization through its, its present and its history. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. That's so that's so cool. So during that time also food TV changed a, a ton. It just had began when you started and then it exploded in the early 2000s and you were part of that and you were a judge on Top Chef it was. Can you talk about that and and what that was like and being a judge on Top Chef was so much fun. Top Chef and Food and Wine had a deal. So we were sponsors of the show, and uh, as a result of the sponsorship, I got to be on one episode per season, which I really looked forward to. I looked forward to it because the other judges were great. Gail Simmons, who is on uh, the Food and Wine staff, Tom Kalikyo, who's a chef I admire so much, Padma Lakshmi, and actually the first season um, had Katie Lee, and I just, like, I adore Katie Lee. She's just one of the nicest... um, most genuine people around. Like, I always want to hug her. <laughs> so, being on set, they take it so seriously. I also have been judging on Feed Bobby Flay, which is so much fun, but the exact opposite. Like, you come, you taste, you comment, you leave. Which is great. Top Chef, you travel somewhere, you get in a zone, you, um, you know, you're part more part of the process and I just really enjoyed the challenges I enjoyed meeting the chefs I enjoyed being with the judges I enjoyed being in crazy locations some less crazy 
I mean, I still remember we were in California, like, in a windstorm. Oh, wow. Um, and it was cold and windy, and um, and it was a wine tasting, wine pairing. Which, and Padma and I were just going person to person, and I think the two of us really just wanted to go run inside and, and get warm. Yeah. But being on the show and seeing how seriously they take every single decision, none of the decisions are made lightly. Um, it was a lot of fun. It's so cool. Thinking through, you know, what we just talked about and the trajectory of food from the 90s to the early 2000s, can you talk a little bit about the food scene now and what's most exciting to you, what's most annoying to you, trends, discoveries in New York and beyond, everything? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm so besotted with food that... I organize every single day around food, and I like to have a new food experience every single day if I can. So it's such a motivator for me. Like on a weekend, I'll get up and I'll just want to, you know, try something new. Today I started my day having a masala chai at Pondicherry on Twenty Seventh Street with Cheryl, in fact. Uh Um, And you know, I will go out of my way to to have that food experience in a day. I'm consulting at a restaurant group called Dig In right now, and so today I got to taste... Uh, I love Dig In. Dig In's great. I, I got to taste a few dishes that were in uh, the process of being tested, and that was so much fun cool. to be able to share opinions and see a preview of something. Uh, so the food scene right now is really interesting because the... Labor costs, the rent costs, and the ingredient costs are getting out of control. So it means restaurants as we know it are sure to change. We've heard so much about the rise of fast casual, which is uh, better food than fast food. Uh, The ingredients can be great as they are at Dig In. They're served uh, quickly uh, and at a reasonable price. And... That is fantastic because more people then can have access to good food. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I really love the personal projects, um, the things that aren't made for Instagram, things that aren't like, um, you know, I was in, there's a pop-up called Egg House, which is just made for taking pictures. And that's not a direction that I cherish. What is that? It's called Egg House. Okay. You can sit inside an egg, like a life-size Is this in New York? Crate. It is in New York. It's a, it's a pop-up. Um, but I love people who are just cooking their heart out. Yeah. And I love Frenchette, which just opened. There's a huge... It's ironic because I started when talking about food, talking about how yeah, French. French food was yeah. so important back in the day, and then we veered away from it, and French was considered heavy and old-fashioned, and unchic and uncool. And yet the f- French's relation, the relationship of French food to innovation is incredibly strong. Um, their love of ingredients, you know, there's a lot of very simple French food. There's also a lot of very rich French food, which I happen to have a taste for. But a restaurant opened called French at um, cool. which the with the chefs from um, Balthazar, and it's great. I'm in love with it. 
it's my favorite opening of the year, and I feel like as I've traveled around the country, there have been more you know great French restaurants. Yeah. I'm also really obsessed with Japanese food and any type of um, sushi situation or omakase. Uh, I'm obsessed with fermentation and these chefs in California uh, who were at Bar Chartine, and now they've opened Duna, which is so personal. It's Hungarian crossed with Northern European crossed with Japanese, and they make so many of their own ingredients because they ferment them, and it's like it's a laboratory, but the food is delicious. So I feel like we're at an extraordinary moment because everywhere along the food chain, the food is interesting. Yeah. So whether it is a super high-end tasting menu like at uh, Mamafuku Co., although I think you now you can order a la carte, um, that's exceptional. But these sort of fast, casual, some of them are doing exceptional food. It's the mid-range. It's the yeah. everyday restaurants yeah. that I kind of worry about. Mm. I usually ask this at the end in the in the quick fires, and maybe I maybe I still will, but I, I will take an intermission to to ask it now. What's the best thing you've eaten? Best meal you've eaten in the last week? Ooh, the last week. Um, well, I was at Frenchette on. Monday, and it was fantastic. Uh, I had duck with um, French fries, mm-hmm. and the French fries were just beyond compare. I I don't like the thin, crispy, crunchy French mm-hmm. fry. I like a really potatoey French fry, but they need to be completely cooked through, and they need to be real potatoes, and it needs to be you know not something that was, of course frozen and then reheated and these french fries are the earth like they are the perfect french fry they're really 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 great i'm so excited to go there and get now i want french fries i want well i want to talk about food a, a bit more later but let's go back to your time in this huge leadership role at food and wine i'd love to hear you speak about what you learned about being a good manager you mentioned how great your team was and how that kind of evolved and so I, I want to hear your thoughts on leadership and and being a boss because I wrote down this quote that I read somewhere from you when I was making my notes for today and you said I had an extraordinary team and it was comprised of people who each had very different skills and talents I tried to embrace and celebrate that and shape the job to the person to a certain degree as long as it didn't upend the entire ecosystem We really were a living, breathing organism together, and I love helping people find their strength and put it to use. I loved that quote so much, and so I'd love to kind of hear you talk about, I know you do a lot of mentorship, so kind of how to find the best use of someone and and bring that out of them and any advice for, you know, being in such a leadership role. Um. Sometimes I hear quotes and I'm like, did I really say that? That quote, that's like the the core of my belief system. It's so great. um, I believe it's really important to see what people's skills are. Like you hire someone for a job and you spend at best maybe three hours with them. Yeah. And you know what they've done because of the resume and you know what they've done because of the test. At an organization like uh, Food & Wine or at a magazine... There's actually an enormous amount of flexibility. 
about what someone's actual job could be. You could hire someone to be an editor, and it, tr- it could turn out that they're a fantastic writer and an okay editor. Yeah, you that know, kind of happened to you in your trajectory. Um, I wasn't really a great writer or editor, but I was a really good conceptualizer. I was a really, really... I was very good at understanding the zeitgeist and what people yeah, would want. Yeah, you found your strength. I just couldn't... Um, I, I needed to assign that to somebody else which is what I got to do at House and Garden, and then yeah. got to do at Food and Wine. And ironically, at Dig In, it's the same thing. I get to oversee storytelling, but um, somebody else has to tell the story. Like yeah. I can explain to someone how to tell the story. In any case, so uh, I definitely had situations where uh, someone's job was to find the story, and they didn't turn out to be great at finding the story, but they turned out to be great at interviewing. Mm. Or um, you know, somebody's job might have been to test a recipe in the kitchen and they were good at testing the recipe in the kitchen but what they were great at was doing video you know and I think the best way to find the talent is to give someone a variety of tasks and pay equal attention to how they perform on all of them instead of focusing your attention on what you told them that they were supposed to do and saying well you didn't do that and now I'm disappointed in you but give them a variety of things at which they could succeed or excel and when you see the thing that you spot as their talent um giving them more of that and as i said in that quote as long as it doesn't upset the ecosystem because i i think the the role of a leader is to empower the team to be able to do their job Mm -hmm. and i wasn't i was by no means perfect at it i would hold things up and i wouldn't say yes and all that so getting something approved wasn't necessarily that easy but my I believed whether I was good at it or not that my job was to um help people be able to do their job yeah which is the best quality I think you can have in a leader is to empower people like that um I think that those who were flexible and open to my opinions about you know what a story should or shouldn't be those were the easy working relationships mm-hmm. and the people who are like, I need more autonomy because um, there's a difference between autonomy and confidence. I had a lot of confidence in people, a huge amount of confidence. And I didn't necessarily give them a huge amount of autonomy because I had a very clear vision of what um, the magazine needed, needed to be. And that, if I was in that situation again, I think those are the those are the... Um, challenges of my past that I would reevaluate for the future. Is there a way to give people more autonomy and yeah. still end up at the end point that I wanted? I don't know because I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really yeah. act on that. But that would be, I'd be curious about that. I think you said something. I didn't write this down, but in the article I read, talking about being a friend boss with people and then having to navigate that relationship. Can you talk about how that evolved for you or what you learned from that? So I've had different um, variations on the friend-boss theme. When I first got to Food and Wine and I was so young, um, I was a friend-boss because they were, everybody was, well, they were older or around my age. And I just wanted to be buddies with everybody. Yeah. And I wanted to get along and I wanted... Um, to be well-liked. I wanted to be... I sort of wanted to be liked, yes, but I also wanted to be respected. And I felt like the way to earn respect was to sort of befriend people. Yeah. Um, but I don't actually think that that's the 
best baseline to set. I think it would have been a better baseline to um, to say I'm I'm your boss. I'm telling you what to do, and over time, a relationship can grow. Mm-hmm. And I, I had the opportunity because I was there for so long to uh, start out one way as the boss friend, like we're friends. Oh yeah, and I'm also your boss. To switch it to be I'm your boss. <laughs> oh yeah, and we can also be friends. So um, I created an extremely flat organization, partly because I was such a control freak. Um, and instead of, you know, I wasn't very good at empowering that mid-level leader. I really had relationships with everybody. Um, so boss first, but friendly, accessible, open door. You should come tell me your struggles if you have them. Yeah. And, and it could be anything. Someone's struggle could be... Um, like their boyfriend moved out or their struggle could be that um, they just, you know, can't get the art department to work with them. Like it could be anything. You mentioned how you were there for so long, 21 years, and then a few years ago decided to, to leave that role after over two decades. Can you talk about that decision and that transition and the uncertainty and fear maybe that that came with that and how you navigated that I think I experienced all my fear about leaving before I left I spent two years thinking that I wanted to leave it's one reason I wrote this book mastering my mistakes in the kitchen I wanted to write this book and then find a new career it's like oh my gosh I'm gonna be the mastering my mistake expert yeah and this is me in my launching pad and it's gonna be so incredible and it's all gonna be perfect from here and I, I will build my new career as and I and you wrote that while you were still at food and wine mm-hmm. right and also I had access to all these chefs and um because of because of my position and I didn't I didn't know either in the magazine world maybe I wouldn't have that position for so much longer because there's so much changing I could have easily gotten fired um, but also because I had really been at Food and Wine for so long, I wanted a change. But it turned out that doing that book was not the pivotal point. That book was, you know, fine in terms of success, but it absolutely was not a game changer. It did not change my career. It was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And then I, um, I had to move on, or you know, I, I had to think about another way to move on. And I, every other week, I had a meeting with someone like a breakfast and I so I spent a good bit of time trying to figure out what I was going to do next and I couldn't really see it it was hard to it was hard to suss out I was getting sort of more and more impatient um but I also was mourning the loss of this ideal job yeah the ideal of being the editor-in-chief what does that uh, sorry to interrupt you Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm curious what what is being an editor-in-chief like, what was kind of a day in the life for those 21 years? I'm sure it was super varied, and you were, and especially over those years, but what did it kind of entail if you had to? I think that the first thing that one needs to be an editor in chief is um, you need to have a vision. Mm-hmm. You need to have an idea of what the brand means. And with that, everything else follows. So, you have a vision and you translate it to your team and then in translating it to to your team or into, in my case to my team it would be working with the art department working with the editors uh, on the stories 
what did the stories look like? What do they sound like? Choosing the stories that go in an issue, working on a lineup, uh, you know, tasting the food, making sure that it's on point. Uh, I never, in the test kitchen, because we had a test kitchen at Food and Wine, my word would never be the last word on a recipe, but the idea of like, is this food in the right direction or not? That would sort of be in my purview. Like I wanted to do more healthy food at some point and I wanted to, I would get to the end of the year and I'd read the annual and realize we had 95 pork recipes. And like next year we are not doing 95 pork recipes. Like we're just, somehow we got over porked. This was probably like in 2010. Bacon revolution. Exactly, bacon revolution. We're no more pork. No more sausage, no more pork chops, no more. Um... Anyway, so having the vision, translating it to the team that's your own team, uh, and then taking that vision and translating it and helping your uh, business partners, which in that case, the ad sales and the publisher, helping them be clear enough on the vision that they can go sell it and get ads against it. Um, And then working with the consumer marketing to be sure that it resonates enough with consumers and work with that. And then always be iterating and thinking like what's next for us how can we expand it how can we make more money how can we make people happier um what's in the zeitgeist like how can we get ahead of the curve so it's a lot of putting your mind um sort of out above the fray Mm -hmm. and not getting so bogged down in the day-to-day not being the best friends of the people that you're covering so you have enough distance um but be involved enough that you um you know, you know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, represent at events. Um, do some PR for the brand. Do as much TV as you can. Bring as much attention to the brand so that it flourishes. Um, and then, you know, manage the relationships with the... That's so much. The boss people. Yeah. I um, can see how that would feel... It's awesome. ...really challenging to leave because you're yeah. hitting so many notes creatively. You're working with every department. You're a visionary. And you're able to have a team to to make that vision actually come to life so I can imagine leaving that was a lot (laughs) well it's also um, yes and being the final decision maker on everything Mm -hmm. although with my partner my publisher partner she played a huge role um Chris Gertovich but partly leaving all that behind was hard I think people thought that I myself identified with food and wine, and if I left, I would have lost my identity because mm-hmm. you leave food and wine behind, and who are you? And I didn't, that wasn't really my struggle. I didn't feel that I was indeed food and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved being able to, I, what I loved ab- about being at food and wine was the, as I said, the amazing team, but the access to the ideas and working over these ideas with such a great team and developing um, new projects and seeing them through and putting like interesting things out into the world and being able to sort um, what was happening, to have a point of view of it and um, to share that. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking back, there's things that I would have added to what we covered at Food and Wine. Um, and so there's some ideas that I probably left on the table that I shouldn't have. But that was the really fun part. The team, the ideas, having access to every single thing that was happening in this world, being able to think it through 
organize it in order to share it with a wider wider world was was absolutely delightful. So knowing that I wanted to leave, mm-hmm. um, you, you know what? I, I mourned it way before I actually left. How long before you actually left did were you thinking about leaving? Well, the book came out in 2014. I left in 2000. I left January 2016, and it takes two years to put together a book. Mm. So it was a while. Yeah, you know, it was a. It was not. Um, it was a while. Yeah. Let's talk more about the transition and the you know un- uncertainty that that comes with that. I, you had another great quote in the article I read where you said. Being without direction is intimidating, but it's not the same as being lost. I'm not scared anymore. I'm shocked at the sense of calm that I have now. Can you talk about how you came to that sense of calm and, you know, that transition time between then and all the projects that you have going now? When I left Food & Wine, I went directly to Chef's Club, which is a restaurant group that had been started within Food and Wine. And so I left with a place to go. Like It was too much to even conceive of leaving Food and Wine without having yeah. another job. Um, but I knew that wasn't my final resting stop even mm-hmm. when I took it, but it felt like it was going to be a great transition. That job had many, um, many challenges, but the thing I had always been afraid of, and I say always, when I say always, I really mean always. I mean since I was 24 or probably 26 and left Vogue, I was always afraid of not having a job, always. I was like, what What would I do? I'm such a, um, I derive so much pleasure from working every day, mm-hmm. and um, though food and wine itself wasn't my identity, working was my identity and the idea of not working of being at a cocktail party and someone says so what do you do and you're like I don't do anything um that like popped in my mind but what I was really afraid of was how was I going to spend my time Mm -hmm. this is so leaving chef's club because I went to chef's club for a year then I I left how's I going to spend my time how was I going to um wake up and not just stay in bed and and never leave how is I not going to be the um you know the yoga pant person who just sat around and because you can have if you have no job nothing can take up your time very easily right and I didn't I just thought I'd be depressed I thought Mm. and I had a fear of that since I was 26 Mm a motivating fear of mine. And the most amazing thing happened, which was when I left Chef's Club, and as I said, it wasn't a good fit, so leaving was not hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was over the heartache of, you know, like the food and wine heartache had been so much mm-hmm. earlier, so it was I was quite freed. Yeah. Um, the thing that truly astonished me was how I treated not having a job like having a job and so instead of waking up depressed and like I can't believe I don't have a job I woke up and I was like okay 
today yeah. I'm going to do four amazing things. Cool. And you know what those four amazing things are going to be? Like, I'm going to have this amazing meeting with so-and-so. And then I'm going to talk to this person because they really need help flushing out their ideas. And then I'm going to, like, go all the way to, like, pick a place because I hear they have, you know, a great pretzel. And then I'm going to come home and spend time with my daughter. And then, and so, in fact, I was, my time... Um, became filled with things that were really a pleasure. And every morning when I woke up, I would wake up and before even opening my eyes and even getting out of bed, I would say, like, what are the four amazing things that I'm going to do today? And, like, just go through the checklist of, oh, my gosh, that's going to be amazing, and that's going to be amazing, and that's going to be amazing. And there was nothing in any day that I had after I left. Um, I mean, it's actually true. That's like, is that true? Is that sort of too Pollyanna positive-ish? But... (laughs) Truly, when it's your own schedule, every day can be filled with something that brings you joy. Yeah. I allowed myself to have no direction. So instead of saying, you need to find a job, I I said to myself, I may need to find a job. Um, I gave myself a year to figure out how I could make some money um, and what my real passion was. Was there a project that I wanted to invest my time in? And so my mother kept saying to me, um, you really could, should put a time frame on this. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I, I'm... And I, my pushback to her was, well, I need to figure out what I want to do and I, that just doesn't come. It's like being a writer. You know, if you're writing a novel... You can't say, I don't think you can say, you know, today I'm going to write 20 pages. Some people do, but I'm going to write 20 pages. And I'm going to finish my novel on January 1st. And I don't think finding a job works that way. I don't think you say, I'm going to find a job by, you know, January 1st. I think you say, I'm going to investigate these different opportunities and um, I'm going to take something to make money in the meantime, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm not totally unrealistic. So, um... Some projects came to me. I said yes to a ton of projects. And, um, you know, large, small. And what was great about it, every time I would talk to a potential, you know, client, because I've done a bunch of small consulting, my attitude was, I can do this for you. If you if it doesn't work for you, that's completely fine. Like I'm not I'm not worried if it's not a match because I'm actually in the process of figuring out what the best match is yeah and um and having that open mind has led me to really great experiences um and learning more and more what I want to do yeah um which isn't to say that if you ask Cheryl my best friend uh, you know who mentioned earlier um were there not weeks of panic there have been weeks of panic like what am I doing? I have no idea. Like, when is this all going to come together? It's so frustrating. But yeah, those, you know, those weeks, it was more in, in an intellectual thing rather than what am I doing today? Because what I'm doing today is a good thing. Yeah, that's so inspiring. So I'm, I'm also kind of in a career transition and just, you know, I think in, in life we get, we're kind of constantly going through transitions and the the thing I find most inspiring about being in charge of your own time is, I, and I relate to that so much of 
being afraid, like when I'm really busy, I crave white space. And then I'm also afraid of white space because I overfill my time. But knowing what a theme I'm finding when I do these interviews, when I talk to people like yourself that have these sort of similar stories, like when you create the space, the universe kind of fills it with things that can move things forward in ways that you can't even expect. And it's sort of magical. And I think I really needed to hear that. I think it knowing those four things and, and choosing them and just letting things unfold, I, I can see from you know the projects that you do now that I want to talk about that I know you're so passionate about. I think those, it sounds like those are a direct result of you just kind of moving in the direction of what sounds good and inspiring and exciting to you. Right. The, the only, you know, the only thing that I would say, I, I'm not wary of the universe, you know, giving me gifts. I love the universe giving me gifts, but I don't think anyone should ever, um, have that as an operating model. Um, I think the operating model is you do something, you make choices every day that are aggressive and forward moving. Mm-hmm. You make the phone calls, you meet the people, you never stop, you never stop moving forward and you never stop asking and being open-minded and then out of all that effort and all that work the universe will toss something at you so i i think that um this notion that the universe will provide um you know if you're a good soul yeah you know only if the good soul even if the quality only if the quality of being a good soul is that you put yourself yeah into situations aggressively every day yeah that will allow you to meet the universe I do think I completely agree and I think having that directing your own schedule and as long as you know it sounds like we're similar in the way of being a good self-motivator I don't think everyone is but I think if I if you have that which I know I do because I'm constantly overfilling my schedule that that sets you up for success in in that way we were talking about Exactly. I think that um, my you know question to myself now because I'm doing this really wonderful time at um, at Digim, but I'm I'm also saying yes to a lot of other projects. Is at what point is that actually a bad idea? I'm not sure if I've hit the bad idea point. You know yeah. where I shouldn't take on another project, um, but I think that is the that is the challenge that can come yeah. if you say yes to a lot of things because I, I, I say yes because I want to see is this something I want to do like yeah. does this call to me more than the last thing Yeah, because I'm still trying to figure it out even though everything I'm doing interests me what is the thing that will land and then I'm only doing one thing not four things yeah. or five things I don't know that thing yet um, so that's I thought that's the question that I ask myself when I get up in the morning and I'm like, ugh, you know what? I really need to get back to that person about this podcast that I'm really interested in starting yeah. and I haven't had the chance to do that. Hmm. Maybe I'm not setting my time appropriately because I actually am more interested in doing that than I am doing this thing that has a time frame. So I heard you in another podcast talk about being a taster and how you like tasting different things and I think that concept might apply to your life or the the life phase that you're in right now too. I I know you mentioned you do that with watching TV and and trying different things. And I relate to that so much. And on this podcast, 
people listening will know this, I've been talking about feeling like a master of none and that I'm, I don't know, you know exactly where I want to focus, but somebody told me who did the podcast that that's a sign of a highly creative personality and mm. whatever. So I was like, okay, I'll take it. And whatever seems to rise to the top is whatever was meant to. And I think you were kind of mentioning that, but can you talk about, you know, of all the projects that you're doing, maybe getting into how your work with Diggin started, if you feel like you're a taster and what, what do you mean by that? And if you feel like you're like that with all the different projects you're doing currently. I love people who make connections between things. So let me see if I agree with you. I think that in terms of what I'm working on, I actually am aiming towards a full sit-down meal. Um, (laughs) What I'm doing right now is a little bit more like tapas style, which isn't necessarily my preferred way to eat. So um, in terms of a career... There's nothing wrong with tapas, so there's nothing wrong with like doing a little consulting here and um, a little consulting there and working on a project at the same time. I think that as with tapas, the question with career tasting, so taking small chances, is that you can leave hungry mm. and you could end up unsatisfied. Yeah. And so my goal with all of this sampling is to find the thing that I find deeply satisfying that I just want to commit to the way that I would commit to a completely full on meal and not be a a taster. Yeah. Um, so I think it is a little, it's a little bit different, um, for me just in, in terms of curse. Somebody said to me the other day, she said, you know, you should only do what you want. I mean, you've had such a robust career. Um, the implication being, you could just, you know, take a bunch of fun projects and that's it. Because aren't you kind of done? Like, you had your big career. And I feel that is uh, nice in a way to think that, wow, I had this really robust... I feel so um, so lucky and also so... I, it's so rewarding to have had food and wine. But I also feel like I have a lot of energy around committing to something... I don't know what I don't know what that is. So yeah. like a big fried chicken meal, like I'm ready for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's speak of one of your projects, your amazing podcast, speaking broadly, where you highlight women in the in and around food and different aspects of of the food world. Why did you choose podcasting as one medium to to focus on? And I'd love your thoughts on the popularity of podcasting and you know your favorite parts of hosting one and advice or lessons that you have there. I really love podcasting, and uh, it plays to so many of, I mean, I would say strengths are just the things that I love. Mm-hmm. I don't like to write, as we've now heard so many times <laughs> in this podcast, but I love people, and I love stories, and podcasting allows me to tell the stories of people and get to know people, and another passion of mine is um, helping people get to the next step and one thing about the podcast is we have a somewhat intimate as intimate as you can be in a short period of time conversation and then after I get off the air I'm like well you know I would love to help you more depending on where they are in their 
stage of their career um, as just I find it so I'll use the word rewarding again I find it so rewarding to share people's stories and particularly stories of people whose stories might not be out there already I'm less interested in um, people who are already famous or whose stories have been told so many times Mm -hmm. that it's very hard to get something new from them Um, I love the auditory quality I love the, the possibility of you're just sort of lulling, you know, being in the background of someone's mind as they're doing something. I love that part of how podcasting is experienced by those who yeah. love podcasts. Um, I love Heritage Radio Network, which is the the home for uh, speaking broadly. They are a listener-supported all-food radio. The uh, person who runs it is brilliant. Um, and... I love being part of the family of Heritage because there are, the hosts are fantastic and the mission of um, Heritage is fabulous. And um, so it's finding like a little bit of an editorial home there. I, I, I love playing any kind of role with them that I, that I can. And I love being able to share an editorial, what I would call like an editorial point of view about who the guest is. Yeah what the topic is uh in a way i'm adding to the conversation that i felt like i left unfinished at food and wine Mm -hmm. because a lot of my focus now is on people whose voices haven't been heard it's something i didn't focus on at food and wine because we were really more about entertaining and trends and chefs um and so that is so uh so satisfying yeah and Every time I interview someone, I just like I fall in love with someone new. So I have, you know, fifty lovers from the last year, yeah. and I feel grateful to have gotten to know these people a little bit better, and now have them sort of in my life in either a peripheral or yeah. you know, less, more than peripheral way. That's my favorite part of podcasting too. I, I think of it as the new networking. Yeah. I've gotten to meet so many people that I never would have gotten to if I didn't have you know this little recorder between us and. That's my favorite part of it, too. And now over 200 episodes, the people that I've That met. is amazing. That's yeah. so great. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I hope I'm doing it till I'm, till I'm 90. <laughs> I want to return to food a little bit and food culture and, and trends. As, as I think I said either before we started recording or at the beginning, but I got into doing this through the wellness space, and which I got into because of my eating disorder and my disordered relationship with food and you know because of that my relationship with food and my body is is complicated and I have have baggage with that like so many people do and I would love to talk about food and specifically wellnessy food and the rise of that in the last I don't know maybe five five years especially and you know, we're, I think I've heard you talk about this on other podcasts or your podcast where, you know, food was about pleasure or food culture really was about pleasure and indulgence exclusively. But now we see it merging into taste and wellness combining. And, you know, what do you think about that trend and what's happening there from, from your perspective? I think that so much of the new foods that we're experiencing and either chefs are innovating around or restaurants are focused on is healthy or health focused. Uh, 
I love that, you know, Bon Appetit has healthy-ish, mm-hmm. which I think is a great way to live. You know, I could never be hardcore healthy. Every single food that I love is unhealthy for me. Uh, anything fried, anything with dairy, anything with carbs except potatoes. Um, so healthy-ish <laughs> sort of works for me. But when I look at my favorite restaurants, aside from Frenchette, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. ABCV, which is... So um, good. It's vegetarian, but the food has, it's so sophisticated and it's so smart and it's so delicious. Mm-hmm. And I think that will set the bar for a new type of vegetable focused restaurant. Dig in is vegetable focused. Mm-hmm. I think uh, people playing with ingredients that I have never heard of um, and can't wait to get better acquainted with. I think that there's, there is so much innovation around the ingredients and so much respect for other cultures that have uh, ingredients that are superfoods, where we, we now have access to different superfoods than you know we've thought about in America for so long. So I just I love how uh, looking at food through the wellness lens brings us to a global perspective uh, and opens our minds in a way that I think. If we were talking about wellness 10 years ago, it was really boring yeah. because it was about either diet or fad or restriction or, um, you know, manipulation and fake food. Yeah. And I think that happily we've rejected so many of those things as wellness and now see wellness for what it is, which is yeah. a mind-body balance and uh, along with liking only foods that are unhealthy for me, I also um, don't like, you know, sports or athletics of any kind. So um, <laughs> I feel that I'm, I'm lucky that I have the metabolism that I have. But when I look at other people, you know, the thing that I preach is a mind-body um, yeah. balance. I'm yeah. really interested in the meditation zone. Cool. Do you meditate? How do you handle stress? What are your... I don't feel stress. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm not stressed or that other people might not see me as stressed. One of the things that surprised me after food and wine was I would see someone and they'd be like, oh my God, you look amazing. You look so relaxed. And I'm like, wasn't I always relaxed? I always felt very relaxed. And that was such an insight because I always felt like I was so chill and so enthusiastic and no apparently I looked really stressed (laughs) I do that too like sometimes I don't realize it but my boyfriend realizes how stressed I am and I'm like oh maybe I am (laughs) so so because I never recognize it when I'm stressed I don't do things to really combat it yeah I I mentioned before about you know my my relationship personally to food is, is is complicated and to body and wellness and I think everyone's relationship to, to their bodies can be complicated, especially as women. Can you talk about, we always talk about body image on this show. You mentioned, you know, your metabolism and your love for food. But how have you handled, you know, working with food for, for decades and being so prolific in the food world? I I loved one of your Instagram captions somewhat recently where you you showed a burger and you said that you, you know, used to restrict this type of food or, or not restrict it, but just didn't, 
you had shunned it, I think is what you said. And it was, and then you said that, you know, you realized the importance of, of pleasure. And, and I found that, you know, moving to New York and, you know, following different people and your work in particular has really helped me with my relationship to food and, and my body. And, you know, we have so few sensory pleasures in this world to deny ourselves them, I think is so, so silly. So how have you navigated all that? I feel like that wasn't a very articulate question, but I'd love for you to just kind of like spew on that. Uh, I, when I was at Food and Wine, I was actually much more disciplined. I do have an you know, a, a genetically gifted metabolism. So I can probably eat more than most. And because I'm really great at taking a bite of something and like, I don't need to eat it. I don't need to finish it. Um, and I don't have a ravenous appetite. There was someone at food and wine, um, who I adored and but she said, like, it was so unfair because she had a huge appetite. So, you know, to not eat, like, she would just be hungry. And I can eat little bits and, like, feel really satisfied. Mm-hmm. So I feel quite, like, that was a bit of a gift. Um, but I was saying, when I was at Food and Wine, because I was eating all the time, I really was very conscious of, you know, eat half of something, take a bite, don't go crazy, um, because you really are going to be eating the next five days food from the test kitchen. Um, and so somehow my time after food and wine, I have been less disciplined, which, um, I find frustrating. Like <laughs> the other night I was at an event and I had, um, you know, I tend not to eat a ton of chips because I look at them and I'm like, you're not really good for me, so I don't want you. And like they were just talking to me, and they're like, eat me, eat me. I'm like, okay. And, you know, I ate a bunch of tortilla chips. Like, yuck, why? And then I, sure, it's usually very easy for me to say, like, that's all grease. Like, don't touch that. Like, that is not, that's not really worth it. Like, I, I ate that. I'm like, what happened to my discipline? You know, I just, so, um... I've let down my guard. It hasn't really materially changed um, anything, which is an interesting thing to note. Um, and so I eat more, and it makes me happy, yeah. and that's fine. Can you talk about the importance of of food and pleasure? And, you know, I think with the rise of the health movement, which I talk about on this podcast quite a bit, sometimes can be a veil for dieting where like in the 90s you know we called a spade a spade with dieting it was like low fat and calorie counting and then now with the rise of the health movement sometimes it can just be a mask for people's disordered relationship with food mm-hmm. and you know a, a more trendy way to say you're dieting because dieting is so uncool but being you know into wellness but really people are are restricting and which you know I I don't believe that dieting is sustainable or or good for us and I think we you know pleasure with food is so important and you know the rise of eating disorders with all of that can you talk about you've mentioned it a little bit but how important pleasure is with food and connection and how food is so much more more than just fuel, which, you know, is well, a wellness concept of sorts. Right. It, it fascinated me at Chef's Club 
there was um, a woman working there who I adored. And it was the first person who I knew who loved food, but she really saw it as fuel. Like, she looked at a meal in a completely healthy way Mm -hmm. and just said, like, is that going to be good for my body? Like, am I going to... Is that going to give me energy? Is that going to fuel my workout? Is that going to make me feel good? I'm like, oh, my gosh, it has never... Like, food as fuel has never crossed my mind, like, ever. And that was such a revelation. Um, My current... The founder, my current boss, the founder of Dig In, sees food as fuel. It's really hard to crack him to have just food. Like, mm-hmm. food is just joy to me. Like, I yeah. I try something, I'm like, that chocolate's so good. Or, um, you know, the mac and cheese. Like, the pleasure of every aspect of it, whether it's just, you know, it's creamy and warm and, um, you know, delicious like a mac and cheese or... It's a perfectly cooked steak. Like I, I take visual pleasure. I take, you know, I, I take pleasure like eating something that's delicious. Um, I take pleasure in not overeating. Like I actually take, you know, joy in like the fact that I can eat happily and then be done. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually really interested in what you're saying because it's not a world that I'm in. Yeah. The, the world that I'm in, people, I'm not going to say they eat with abandon, but they eat quite heartily. Like they I'm not saying there aren't eating disorders. I'm sure there are many. Mm-hmm. But most people, at least the way they present, is that they they like food. Yeah. You know, and they can, they'll eat a meal. And if they're not eating a meal, it's really because they are more like the situation I had at Food & Wine where I was just eating so much. Right. Like the expectation is, of course, you're not going to finish that because you're going to eat 10 more things. Yeah. Or chefs send out 10 dishes and they don't have the expectation you're going to eat everything because right. that would be insane. Right. Um, so I've actually found that people in the food world have, again, overstating, oversimplifying, yeah. my experience at Food & Wine, they have, in general, pretty good relationships yeah. with food. Um, they, they know there will always be more. Yeah. And they know they can make it themselves. They know they can control it to a certain degree. Um, I think that makes sense based on everything that you know, I've known in the eating disorder community and in the wellness community with the rise of things like orthorexia. What's that? It's an obsession with healthy food and healthy eating. Oh, yeah. And it's actually a new, it's actually in the DSM of like an actual eating disorder. So there's anorexia, and it can make you really bulimia. Sick, yeah, yeah, I had it. It wasn't in the DSM when I went through my eating disorder treatment. So I had anorexia, but then a lot of people are coming out of something like anorexia, bulimia into, okay, I've got this, I'm going to heal it through, I'll just eat more avocados. But then you become very restrictive of like, I can't, I had no pleasure in in food. It wasn't, this is my own experience. And so many people, you know, with social media, it helps with this. And you become very, very narrow-minded in what's allowed. And then you're afraid of foods. You have all these foods and all this restriction of foods. And so it makes sense that your experience at Food and Wine, people had really healthy relationships with food because they were allowing. And when you're when what you res- what you restrict, you end up binging. Like it's like a mm. you know if you restrict, restrict, restrict. One day you're no, you're never allowed to eat tortilla chips, and then suddenly you know you're you eat the entire bag because diet starts tomorrow. You're in that like diet mentality. Got to get it in now because mm. it's not allowed in the future. Where you know when you're in the food world, it's like you can enjoy, you can have a bite because you can have more later, right. and you don't don't have to get it in now you know right and I don't you know I'm sure 
there's plenty of eating disorder issues that I'm just not attuned to yeah. the way that like there's a lot of mental health issues in the restaurant world, not necessarily in the you know the writer's world, but um, this the notion of food as food as fuel just has never crossed my mm-hmm. um, doorstep. Yeah, and I've always been sort of you know wink wink like I had these terrible eating habits but then I think about those people for whom food really is fuel and I, they I always think well they must listen to what I eat and think that's just not good actually um but I believe in balance and that's yeah. actually yeah I that, think it's that's really my my, that's my bigger picture yeah coming from you know my whole relationship and trajectory with food like I think people I think it's really sad to to look at food that way because mm-hmm. obviously food isn't isn't fuel it's connection it's community and it has been for millennia so I denied that for so long that it's actually really helpful to follow you on Instagram and you know our mutual friend Camilla who did the podcast and different people who I know and love and love food to see that for me is actually really healing I was actually just talking to my boyfriend about that at dinner last night I was like my my birthday is next weekend and I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do and it, planning it around on, around food, which is, you know, even five years ago, three years ago, was something I would have never allowed for myself. And it's really beautiful that, you know, I, I've come so far, I think, in my relationship with my body and, and food and allowing it to be a really beautiful thing. It reminded me of your, your TED Talk, which is one of my favorite things of yours where you talk about the ugly food movement and which everyone should watch and it's it's great and I want to know you know kind of where that is and if it, it's still alive and well but I I loved how that you know redefines the way people look at at food and I think reframing the way that we look at at bodies kind of in that same vein of you know our standards of beauty are are so narrow of you know it, really only in the last hundred years we defined thinness as beautiful but before that it's whatever is most difficult to attain and cost mm-hmm. the most resources to mm-hmm. attain and you know before that it was harder to attain a plumper body shape right. so <laughs> it's so interesting how that changes and we can change our minds at what we think is beautiful and people just like we can with food and I, I thought that was such an interesting connection um, I love that idea I See, the thing, um, I'm very devoted to ugly vegetables, which are vegetables that are not conventionally acceptable mm-hmm. at supermarket standards. They would get plowed under or they end up in the landfill. It's t- a terrible misuse of resources, uh, like water, um, land, uh, and also when so much of the world is hungry, it's, I mean, that is also just awful. Yeah. Uh, and on the human side, it's not judging someone for what they look like and understanding the inner beauty. Because the, the ugly vegetables, though they might be small or they might be pocked or they might be this or that, um, they're really beautiful on the inside. So I feel like there is that, um, there is that parallel. Yeah, I know. I love that. Lack of judgment. I could talk to you forever, but let's do some quick choir questions before we wrap mm-hmm. up. Okay. So what are you most excited about right now, today? What's your favorite part of your life right now? 
Such a good question. My my favorite part of my life is that I'm uh, dreaming up a new women's platform, a tech platform, to help people navigate their next steps. So and cool. I spend all of my time, well, not all of my time, but I spend a lot of time thinking about that and how I will be able to help so many more people than I can even help today. That's so cool. I love that. You, you. I think this platform ties to this but you do a lot of mentoring of other women and I would love to know your greatest lesson on mentorship on both sides for the mentor and the mentee Um, the greatest lesson on the mentor side is to listen really hard to what the person really wants and needs and be sure that's what you're giving them instead of some prescribed spiel Mm -hmm. because everybody actually needs something different uh, and I feel like the, there's the gift of listening, but there's also the gift of what is the one thing that is that you can offer that would change and improve their situation, whatever that may be. So it could be a connection to a person. It could be the gift of confidence, which I think is extremely important. Uh, it could be pointing out a path that helps unblock them and on the mentee side I think it's being um, honest because some sometimes people will come and I can tell they're just they're so masked you know everything's fine everything's fine and I'm like well if everything's fine then you're kind of wasting my time yeah right and uh, being clear on what it is that you want to get uh I think that some mentee types just want to like cozy up to someone who is successful and they think will have some wisdom and that's a very generic mm-hmm. idea. And I think for a mentee to get anything, actually, it's not about cozying up to somebody, you know, and you're going to get associated strength. It's about mm-hmm. saying, this is what I, this is what I need. Um, this is what I think you have. Can you help me? Yeah, yeah. Those are both such such good advice on both sides. You mentioned lack of confidence as being something that a mentor can can help a mentee with, and I think you, I heard you mention somewhere else about asking them the right question as a mentor can really help people find the confidence within themselves, and it it reminded me of of my book, which is about journaling. And it's you know, which is a tool for me that has been helpful with self-inquiry and self-awareness and and eventually confidence. And it's essentially 55 hopefully good questions and journaling prompts. How do you help people find the good questions to ask themselves? Or do you have any good questions that people can ask themselves to elicit confidence? That is very interesting because... I think that life coaches work that way. Mm-hmm. They ask a lot of questions so that you can find the answer yourself. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of patience with that because I don't necessarily want to be asked those questions myself. I mean, not in the that situation, but yeah. just sort of in general. And I feel like the strength that I have is to see beyond so that the person I'm talking to doesn't have to ask the questions. And I might be wrong in my assumptions, but... Um, I'd have to I'd have to think about that. I 
tend not to ask questions. I tend to make pronouncements, and you can take them or leave them. They could be right or wrong, but they're starting points for um, someone to think more. They can absolutely reject what I said, like, choose completely wrong. This is not what I need, or, oh, my God, that's the thing that I needed to get me off my butt, and now I'll, you know, like, I'll pursue that. Yeah, I like that better. I don't want another question. I want... That's the thing. I feel like the reason that people talk to me is because they have a lot of questions, and I've seen those, you know, the questionnaires you have to fill out and get to know yourself, and I'm like, well, I don't know. That just seems like a whole lot of work around a circle. Yes. And um, I'm very impatient with that. I think it would make me sort of a a conventionally bad life coach because maybe it's better to come to it on your own, but... That's not my approach. I'm like, yeah. we're only know, here for so long. Like, that's exactly right. Like, I, I have a, like, I have an hour with you. Um, you tell me, I'll, I will ask you a lot of questions so that you can tell me, and then I will, you know, give you. Some I thoughts. love that. That's like the. That's exactly what I what I always want. <laughs> I think is just like tell me what you what you think. Like we were talking about with shopping. Like I just right. want the direction. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so you wrote a book a couple years ago. Um, about cooking and your relationship with cooking. What has been your greatest lesson on cooking and where are you with with cooking now? My greatest lesson with cooking is that I (laughs) had 65 great chefs teach me how to cook for this book called Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen. And I never mastered it because my real mistake is inattention. My real mistake is that I'm not terribly focused. So I think that um, something that that I'd like to work on with chefs, with myself, is, you know, how do you, how can you be really mindful in the kitchen? I love that. It kind of speaks to what we were talking about for, about meditation and just focus in general. I love that. That'd be great. Greatest lesson on motherhood? Uh, Greatest lesson on motherhood is that you'll probably never be a perfect mother. I don't know if people aim for that. Um, I think that trying to create both boundaries, respect, resilience in your kids is great. Um, I think motherhood's really hard. It's so much harder (laughs) than, um... You know, being a work... I felt like eventually I was like a work mom. I was a boss, but I was really sort of a work mm-hmm. mom um, for so many of the people I was working with because they were so much... A lot of them so much younger than I was. Um, but I think motherhood is hard because you're balancing what you need and what you want to give and what somebody else needs. And you really want to do it well, but you don't have any experience at least the first time. And even the second time, it's so different from your first experience. So the thing about work is you get to get better at it. Mm. The thing about motherhood is the first time you're like, you're winging it, um, so you can only be as good as, you know, your best effort. Uh, So I feel like I should have had three kids. That third kid would have been (laughs) fantastic. That's so funny. I love that. What about romantic relationships? And we never got back to when you met your husband or how you met your husband. Was it through one of those parties that you hosted? That would have been nice, right? Um, no. I met uh, my husband through mutual friends at a party. Okay. And um, what was the question? 
greatest lesson on greatest romantic lesson. relationships or marriage or kind of wherever you want to go with that? Um, I picked so well, and I don't know, you know, how I got so lucky. I think it's just the ability to have an instinct about what you actually need and can that and what you can give Mm -hmm. and the reverse in that other person so I found a person who um, wanted what I could give and he also gave me what I needed and so it's a balance that's pretty magical yeah I love that Speaking of magical, do you have a favorite New York moment or maybe the best or favorite part of the city, something about New York? Oh, I love New York. Uh, I love Central Park. I grew up going to Central Park as a little girl uh, and have so many memories from Central Park. I walked my kids through Central Park to school and that was so special, just you know, holding little hands mm-hmm. and walking, um, walking through Central Park. I, I love that it is a relief from the city. I love that it also can be explosive and exciting. Like once we um, were walking through the park and caught an amazing concert. You know, cool. these you can trip across these things that are amazing. Shakespeare in the park is so incredible. So uh, the skating rink is in Central Park. There's just these moments, like it's such a world, and I love being able to go two blocks from my apartment and be in another world. Yeah. Okay, this is one of the last questions. I always ask people about morning routines and evening routines, so what are maybe the first three things you do when you wake up and how that affects the rest of your day and the last few things you do at the end of the day and to shut down and before bed? Uh, I wish it was more interesting. I pick up my phone. I go through um, all my apps and see if there's any fires from the night before. Uh, And then I take a shower, you know, just like do an entire bathroom routine and leave the house. It's so straightforward. I don't do anything interesting. I don't do anything different. I don't eat. Um, Not a breakfast person? Actually, I, I, um, I like breakfast. But I don't have breakfast at home. And I'm, mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's not a meal I have at home. Uh, so that's really, that's it. And it gets, of course, changed over time because there used to be kids in school and yeah. all that. But at this moment, my, my morning routine is extremely simple. And my nighttime routine is the exact same in reverse. <laughs> I, like, check every single thing before I go to bed, be sure there were no fires left over from the day. Um bathroom routine and sleep like nothing I don't read I don't um I don't watch tv I don't have like I mean I will have a great conversation with my homework but the with my with my husband <laughs> oh my husband's my home partner um but no there's no sort of interesting I, yeah there it's very uh it's very very simple yeah, I love that. So I mentioned that I always ask people the best thing they've eaten in the week, and you already told me that. But I think for you, I'll I'll end with what is your favorite meal of maybe of all time, or one that sticks out with you. That's that's something that you love or think my, about still. My favorite meal anywhere always is fried chicken, um, and or lobster. My my favorite 
I mean, I have two favorite meals probably. One is at Five Islands in Maine just because it's on the Maine coast and the lobster's caught there. And I told you before that I love lobster and I'm usually with my husband's um, extended family there. I love being with them. I love being with our kids. I love that it's it's a tradition. Uh, My daughter always jokes that we don't have any traditions in this family, but going to Maine and having lobster and sitting on this dock is a tradition. That sounds so amazing. I love I love that as a tradition. Uh, and yeah, I can leave it at that. Thank you so much for doing this. I know my podcast is so long, so it means so much that you took so much time. Of course. It was lovely to um, to have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Me. It's called Let It Out. So is there anything that you wish that I would have asked or that you still want to ask or that you still want to talk about? Anything? Did I bring you dry for all of your wisdom? Anything else you still want to share? Um, I hope there's more wisdom, but I don't have anything that I'm, I'm, um, I feel that was left out. Good. Well, everyone needs to listen to um, Speaking Broadly, and hopefully they can find the new platform that you're creating really soon. And friends forever. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was my episode with Dana Cowan. Isn't she a delight? Very fascinating person. I can't get enough of her. And you probably feel the same way. So I would go and check out her podcast, Speaking Broadly. Listen to the episode she recorded in Detroit. That was a personal favorite of mine. Also, again, the one with Camilla I loved as well. Okay, there's a quote actually that Camilla reads. That's one of her favorite quotes that she reads in the middle of that episode. And I especially loved that. If you liked this and you want to support the podcast and you haven't yet, please leave a review on iTunes and subscribe on your phone or wherever you listen, probably your phone. That would be great. Share this with a friend. It's really easy to do right on your phone to share it. If you need help with that, let me know. Join the listener Facebook group. That's where you can connect to other listeners, to me. It's a blast. The link to that is in the show notes. You guys go to the show notes, right? Let me know. It'd be cool if you did. Also, a great way to support the podcast is our Patreon page. You can, you know, get some really cool bonuses that we're going to be offering there that we already are offering there. Join it. You can support the show just a dollar a month or you could do, you know, $12 a year. It's not that much, but it helps. And you could do more than that. Or, you know what else? You can support the sponsors. The sponsors of this podcast help me to keep being able to do it and do more of it and do more episodes and make more podcasts and more newsletters and it would just be really cool. I recently got my Fit Fab Fun box and oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I shared some of the things in it with my friend Sarah and I also got vibes from when I was a kid and my mom would get like Clinique makeup or Estee Lauder makeup and there would be a free gift and we would like sit in her bed and we'd open up the free gift and it was usually just like a pretty basic toiletry bag and like maybe some brushes and like a small extra tiny lipstick but it was so much fun to open anyway and that's how I feel about the Fit Fab Fun box so check that out make sure you use the code whatever I said in the ad (laughs) do it because they're great and I really appreciate the sponsors for keeping the lights on if you will over here at all things let it out there's a lot of really cool stuff coming a big changes big announcements like really cool stuff you guys I can't wait to tell you but I'm gonna wait because it's not really done yet 
And uh, yeah, I'm just going to wait and tell you later. But okay, if you want to start a podcast yourself, check out the thing I made. I spent six months making this thing. It was called LaunchPod. Now it's called Let Out a Podcast. And here's the thing. I am so proud of it. I talked to 12 other podcasters who completely opened up the kimono and told me exactly what they did, how they did it, why they did it. And learning from them was really helpful to me. I learned a lot. And I, of course, shared every single thing that I did from finding an idea to how to get it onto devices and how to eventually monetize it or cover your costs. So check it out, and I would love to see you in there. Use the code LETITOUT for $100 off. And last but not least, I hope to see you at GoodFest. The code for that, again, is Dalebout 15 That's not even affiliate anything. It's just, you know, I want you to come because I think it's going to be a great time. I had so much fun there last year. Oh, my gosh. Jess and Kate and Jen, the founders, are amazing. We'll put the link in the show notes to my episode with them. I love them so much. Okay, that's everything I have to share with you today. And the emoji for this week's episode is the hamburger. It might be a cheeseburger. There's definitely some lettuce in there. It's a pretty cute emoji, to be honest. It's probably one of my favorites. Very underused for me, to be honest. I I don't know if I've ever even used it before. But I'm going to start because it's, it's a delight. And we mentioned hamburger in here, and you probably remember that part. And I liked that part of this episode, maybe best. Okay, I love you guys so much. I think the world of you, it really, really means a lot that you listen to this podcast. I know it's long, and I know this outro has been exceptionally long, but um, I just, yeah, I wanted to share some things off the top of my head. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. This week's episode is supported by something called Fit Fab Fun. It's a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99, but has a value for over $200. I don't even know how they do that, but that's amazing. And if you use the coupon code Let It Out, that's Let It Out, you can get $10 off your first box, which you'll find at www.fitfabfun.com. I think it's a really interesting concept. It's really cool. This Fit Fab Fun box feels like Christmas four times a year when it comes in the mail. And the products include everything from makeup to candles, accessories, self-care products like a massage roller, travel products, beauty finds. It's really great and you can customize the products, add on what you want each season. It's different and it's a surprise. And the thing that I really love is the membership also includes access to FitFab Fun TV, which has a variety of workouts and meditations that you can do anywhere. And I love that because I love to do workout videos at home. I think it's so much fun and I really like FitFab Fun and I think you guys will too. Just check it out. Again, you can get $10 off your first box by using the code LETITOUT at checkout. That's let it out. And the items include everything from Tarte Makeup, which is a natural makeup line I like, Juice Beauty, which you know I also really love. There's so many great things in there. It's really fun and I think you guys will really like it. Thanks, FitFab Fun.
The music you're hearing behind me now and all other original music in this episode is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. The album art is by artist Zoe Harmon, and this podcast is produced and edited by Amanda Scharf and hosted by me, Katie Dilbout. Check out our website for show notes to everything mentioned.